When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. And being left under strong delusions to believe a lie, they preferred falsehood to truth. So this once prosperous city was judiciously given up by God. Her day of gracious privilege had expired. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're going to the year 1812 to listen to a sermon that was preached by Moses Dow. Troy, how are you doing today? Joel, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Summer is abound. Uh, the, the weather is nice. Yeah. Uh, can't complain too much. It's It's delightful. It's a nice time. You know, Joel, I don't know when this episode will be listening, so on my end... Uh, we are busy. We mm-hmm. are getting packed, ready yeah. for a summer where we will be in the States. Yeah. So if you want to see us or see, or you're near uh, Tennessee or Kansas City or somewhere else, let us know. This will be our first and only time in the States in two years. And we won't be in the States again probably for another two, maybe three yeah. years. So we're trying to pack a lot of stuff in there in a short uh, period of time. Yeah, if my, so, cal- yeah, if you, if my calculations you, are correct, you're probably uh, sitting in an airport as as this episode is published, waiting yeah, for a flight. That's actually what I was thinking too. So I'm I'm talking to you when you're listening before this happens. But when you're listening, I will be probably be traveling the very long like 30 hour journey between Indonesia and the United States of America for a short 60 days of doing a bunch of different important things before we, including seeing you, Joel, Woo. before we come back out here to the hot humid islands of Indonesia. But exciting and also a bit a lot. So for those of you listening who didn't know that, that's where I record from. And uh, Joel will be in Canada during that time. So yeah. you know, I'll see him for part of it. Yeah. Uh, but if you're not following, uh, check out uh, following the Frasers on Facebook. That's if you're on Facebook, that's where at least and I post a lot of those kind of updates. Yeah, and be praying for the Frasers during their their travels that everything goes safe. They have two children. What how, what are the ages of your kids? Eight and four. Eight and four. and four. they they love to travel. I I am very grateful that we're traveling outside of the COVID mask wearing, mm. quarantining for in a hotel for two weeks stage of things. That was let me tell you, not an easy time to travel. So I'm looking forward to this trip much more than I looked forward to the trip out here. Yeah, this will be a breeze compared to yeah how you've had to do things in the past. Moses Dow is a uh, man who preached this sermon, but uh, the focus on this episode, a little bit of a different approach here, rather than focusing on uh, this man's backstory in this life, we're really focusing on the situation around when this sermon was preached, who the sermon was preached to, and it it really all centers around a really big famous war between America and Britain, and you might be thinking, oh, of course, the American Revolution, but nay, I say, a different war between America and Nay. Britain, the War of 1812. <laughs> we don't really know that much about Moses Dow himself, but we do have this sermon where he shares his 
thoughts and concerns about the state of America and the state of Britain and the events that put us in a situation where we were at war once again. And I find it pretty fascinating to see. Um, I don't know if all, all of these social, economical, political, spiritual concepts combined into a sermon like this. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. The War of 1812 happened 30 or so years after the founding of America. And I think to most of us, this is kind of just a footnote in history, right, Joel? Like, mm -hmm. you maybe heard about it a little bit in U.S. history class. Again, if you even took U.S. history, if you're listening from Europe or the Philippines or something, that might not even have been a class you heard. So this might be a war you really have yeah. no uh, recollection on at all, even. Um, but what made this sermon stand out to me was just how much this guy viewed the sermon as a time of life or death. We don't really get a lot of sermons like this. And yet it's always, these are almost the kind of sermons I long for the most. You know, we, we do a lot of sermons by the, the college professor who's written many powerful and important books to a safe audience after 50 years of ministries. And I love those sermons, I do. But I also love these sermons that are being preached, you know, on the front lines. We had a sermon a year and a half ago by Samson Occam where he was preaching at an execution. And he like looks at the guy and he goes, you got like a couple minutes left. Are you going to accept the gospel or what? Like, cause th your time is up, man. He looks at the audience. He's like, you see him. This is who you don't want to be. Um, and I was like, wow, what that is this, those sermons that are just uniquely only at that moment. Could they have been the way they are? And that's what this sermon really kind of stuck out to me. He's preaching it life or death because it is life or death. He's looking at his audience and this is a real war. And we don't think of the war of 1812, but to the Americans, especially at the time, that could have been it, right? If Great Britain won that war, who knows? They might have been able to retake the colonies even. It could have been the end of this American experiment. We probably kind of scoff at that idea and don't think much of it now, but they certainly were worried about it then. And this sermon also stood out to me so much because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't preach like a raw, raw sermon that you might expect where he goes, you know, America will win. We're the, you know, we're the righteous or, you know, you would expect that from anybody to preach that to encourage their people that's not what he does. Just like the John Owen sermon that we had on about a month ago, talking seasonable words for English Protestants, I really encourage you to go read it. It's a really good, um, go listen to it. It's a really good sermon. Both of these guys are speaking to their audience and saying, we are in this war. We are in this situation because we are being judged for our sins and God is trying to wake us up from our unrighteousness. It's just such a different view of looking at your world. And I, I almost think we have really kind of strayed from that. And I, I don't know that I hear sermons like this getting preached so much anymore. Yeah, it's very much a, a, a time machine, a time portal into what life back then must have been like. Because again, this was, this was before America was a world power. Britain was, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, objectively, a more powerful country than America was at this time. And so, I mean, both the sermons by John Owen that Troy just mentioned and the sermon by Moses Dow, they look on America as as a country in sin, right? I mean, Moses Dow points out how America started with such great promise and, and great vision to follow God, but had, you know, since kind of given that up and were throwing themselves into sin is, is how he describes it. And now America was at war with a country that could destroy it. And even if Britain didn't destroy it, you know, the war could cost the lives of, of lots of men, husbands, sons, fathers. So even in a scenario where we win, you know, the, the price is still great 
And Moses Dow, along with several others during this era, point to one of the reasons for this being greed of Americans as, as one of the major sources of the war. And he is so frustrated and pain that, you know, in his view, how he's seeing this, the greed of Americans is leading to this war that uh, could cost a lot of people their lives. Now you might be hearing this and thinking, oh, is this some kind of America did something wrong? Well, not necessarily uh, like America's the bad guys. I just think that the, the minister was seeing a spiritual problem of the people around him. Now to get back, kind of give you a little context. In the 1800s, Britain was really much at war with France because of Napoleon Bonaparte. Part of their plan was to cut off trade to France, kind of embargo it. But France had saved America from Britain during the Revolutionary War. America and France were chums. And so America kept the trade flowing to France. They were kind of pretending to be neutral, but they kept leaning more towards France. Britain didn't like this. And Britain was taking Americans and forcing them, the sailors that they caught on these trade ships, they were forcing them to become soldiers on these naval boats. And they, the way that Britain looked at it was, if you hadn't tried to trade with France, we wouldn't be taking your boat over and forcing them to be sailors in our war. So it's, it's kind of your fault, right? Britain was telling America also that she couldn't expand any further across North America. They, they were basically saying, you have your 13 colonies, stay put, we're, we don't want you getting any bigger. All three of these things, to us, I think most of us would say, Britain, you don't have the right to tell America you know, what to do, how she can trade, and all these different things. And yet, at the time, the ministers and many Christians said, you know what, America, you know that there's a bad war going on in Europe. You're trying to stick your nose in this. And they saw all the link between these three things, between America trying to get bigger than she already was, uh, between trying to trade with the country at war, and these soldier, these sailors getting caught into it. They said, it's greed. That's what's motivating you. You want to make money off the French. You want to keep building out past the lands that you already have. And you're sending sailors over. These sailors wouldn't have gotten caught if they weren't greedy for more money. They really saw this unchristian trait of greed as motivating them. And the thing is, I think that most of us today say they were, Britain shouldn't have been telling maybe America what to do on those things. And at the same time, I do think it's interesting that there, for the ministers at the time, they're not preaching America is number one, America should win this war, anything like that. They're saying, hey, it, what part of this is on us? You know, would this war be happening if we had acted like Christians and been, you know, charitable, not greedy? And it was just such a different perspective to look at it. And it really made me, challenged me to actually ask the question if, you know, things were going badly at home, would I have the courage to get up in front of my audience and go, I know we're going through a hard time, but let's ask ourselves, did we cause some of this issue? What part did we play? And would I be able to look at my audience and go, maybe we were greedy. Maybe this is one of the reasons God is uh, putting us into a hard spot so that we can repent of that. Now, the war itself uh, actually ended up being a good one for America, despite the fact that uh, you know, it, there was some push and pull. America did lose some some big battles. There was this uh, moment where America tried to invade Canada. It did not go well. Uh, there's also uh, a time where Washington Sea was actually burned to the ground by British Canadian forces. But, you know, all in all, at the end of the day, America did pretty well at, at repelling the British forces uh, enough that a treaty was signed. And from an American standpoint, it ended up being a positive part of American history. But at the outset, no one knew that that's the way it was going to end up. The first war with Britain uh, nearly destroyed America, and it took seven years to end. This one ended up being a lot shorter, and uh, America handled it itself a lot better. But again, going back to the outset of this war, the ministers of America 
called on its citizens to fast for this upcoming war. They, they saw it as a tragedy that a Christian nation would fight like this. And we're not currently at war with, with Britain, and many of our listeners aren't even living in America. But uh, this sermon uh, it still has some great points, some great truths about the world we live in and what happens when countries stray from God. And Moses Dow's answer and approach to this is to turn to God in fasting. Luke 19, 41 to 42. And when he had come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, at the least in your day, the things which belong for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. When our Savior uttered these words, he was on his last journey to Jerusalem. There he was going to shed his blood and lay down his life for the redemption and salvation of a lost world. It was not a prospect of his own sufferings which affected him this way. These he had always expected and was prepared to meet with heroic and divine fortitude. But a knowledge of the miseries coming upon that ungrateful, persecuting city by the awful justice of God filled his sympathetic soul with the liveliest impressions of grief. He did not fear death, but cheerfully led the way to the place of his execution. From the Mount of Olives, he entered the city of Jerusalem, riding upon a donkey's colt, amidst the loudest cheers of joy from the whole multitude of his disciples. But when the benevolent Savior saw the devoted city, he burst into tears. Pondering upon the Jews' willful stubbornness, the rejection of all the offers of grace, and the other ruin which awaited the city, the temple, and its inhabitants, he wept with the tenderest compassion. And he exclaimed, as with a wish or ardent desire, if you had known, or, oh, that you had known in this your day the things which belong for your peace, the Jews' day here intended was the time in which they had been honored and favored with the presence of Messiah, their king. This was their day, for Christ and the first preachers of the gospel had spent all their time and labor at Jerusalem. They had been taught repeatedly by Christ and his apostles the things which belonged to their peace, prosperity, and happiness. But they disregarded their message, would not believe their report, nor follow their instructions. Their hearts were hardened and their minds blinded with a spiritual of infatuation. And being left under strong delusions to believe a lie, they preferred falsehood to truth. So this once prosperous city was judiciously given up by God. Her day of gracious privilege had expired. Her doom was past, and everything needed for her welfare was, in righteous judgment, hidden from her eyes. When Jesus approached this devoted place, a view from the neighboring hills awakened in his sympathizing heart the strongest emotions of pity. Though he was about to predict the entire desolation of the city, he did not desire the woeful day. He did not delight in the destruction, even of such wicked people, and therefore he exclaims in a language of ardent desire, mixed with regret, Oh, that you had known in this your day the things which belonged for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Two things can be learned from this passage. One, 
Nations and individuals may neglect the things which belong to their peace until their case is desperate and past all remedy. Two, a prospect of ruin and misery coming upon the despisers of God's mercy will excite the tenderest compassion of all who have the Spirit of Christ. First, nations and individuals may neglect the things which belong to their peace until their case is desperate and past all remedy. Short is the period of human life, even though we linger along for 60 or 70 years, and shorter still may be the day of God's gracious patience and man's favorable opportunity to secure divine favor. For numbers in every age despise the riches of the goodness, patience, and long-suffering of God, not knowing that his goodness lead to repentance, but after their hardness and impertinent heart, they treasure up wrath against the day of wrath. They put far away the evil day, till by long indulgence they become seared in their conscience and incurably hardened in sin, because sentences against an evil work are not executed speedily. Their hearts are fully set in them to do evil. God bears with them for a time. He tries various cures to turn them from their wicked purposes to truth and holiness. He visits them with mercies and judgments, with warnings and invitations, with threats and promises. But when they have long turned a deaf ear to all his counsels, slighted his proposals, and undervalued his unspeakable blessings, when they persevere in resisting, quenching, and grieving his Holy Spirit, they are ripening fast for a cure less destruction. For the Lord has expressly said, my spirit will not always strive with man. The Spirit of God long strove with men of the old world by inspiring Enoch, Noah, and others to preach and to warn them. He long and patiently bore with them despite their rebellions, waiting to be gracious. But at length, incensed by their constant resistance, the warnings of his prophets, and the hardness of their own consciences, he solemnly resolved to leave them to be hardened in sin and to ripen for destruction. In like manner, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, by their filthy and abominable wickedness, provoked the Lord, not only to withdraw his restraint, but to make them the monuments of his eternal vengeance. The most astonishing patience the Lord manifested also towards the Israelites in the wilderness. Forty years long was he grieved with that generation at length grown indignant by their incessant murmurings and gratitude and rebellion. He swore in his wrath that they should not enter his rest. Their short and limited season of probation was then closed, and their state of eternal retribution commenced. If we trace the histories of the several kingdoms of Judah and Israel, we find them subject to frequent and alternative changes from prosperity to adversity. They were taught by experience the truth of that divine proverb, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people mourn. When such men as David and Josiah were their kings, their times were times of reformation, and providence smiled upon all their concerns. But when such as Ahab, Jeroboam, and Manasseh ruled over them, providence frowned, wickedness increased, and the land mourned. In consequence of the great wickedness of the people, their day of gracious visitation was generally short. Their fun of prosperity was soon covered with a dark cloud of adversity. 
If we descend to later times, the glory of empires, kingdoms, and nations appears still more transitory and fading. On the page of history, many of them suddenly rise to view, exhibit a moment of splendor, and then quickly disappear and are seen no more. By various massacres, famine, pestilence, and revolutionary scenes, an immense multitude of governments have arisen since the dispersion of the Jewish nation, but their prosperity and the glory have been like the morning cloud in the early dew. Where righteousness has abounded, the nation has been exalted, but when sin has prevailed, it has quickly sunk in reproach and ruin. This has ever been the course of the providence towards nations, and such will be its course to the end of time. Those who make his law their model and his word their guide, God will bless and prosper. But those who forsake his way and the light of his word, he will leave to certain destruction, to perish without remedy. Where are the once flourishing governments of Asia, the birthplace of man, of prophets, apostles, and the savior of the world? Alas, they are crumbled to ruins. Once they were theaters of mighty works, the residence of many holy men and the scenes of remarkable divine works, Jerusalem, that city of power that cradled God's ancient church were symbols of his presence, is now a heap of ruin. It was often and alternatively rebuilt and destroyed by contending parties. But finally, according to the express prediction of our Savior, it was utterly demolished by Titus an exact fulfillment of the prophecy about 40 years after it was uttered. The city was razed to the ground and its inhabitants destroyed. Indeed, so complete was the destruction of this renowned city that not one stone was left upon another. It was all turned up by the Roman plow in quest of plunder. This was in righteous judgment for their crying sins because they would not regard the things which belong to to their peace. Greece and Rome, once the seats of arts and sciences, the most powerful empires and mistresses of the world, corrupted, debauched, and divided, have long since fallen prey to savage invaders. A deluge of ignorance, barbarism, and superstition has vandalized the mountains of former learnings and magnificence. Their proud ambition, enormous cruelties, and horrible wickedness provoked heaven to blot them from the list of nations. New people have sprung up to inherit their territory, who have formed governments, and had their day of prosperity. Holland, Switzerland, Italy, and Germany were once independent, free, and prosperous states. But not knowing the time of their visitation, not minding the things which belonged to their peace, they became infatuated, and then fell an easy prey, to the mighty power under whose iron rod all Europe groans and bleats at every pore. And they fell, not in the high places of the field, not by the forces of arms, but by blindly yielding to the insidious arts of their designing conquerors. They had drunk the wine of astonishments, by which they were intoxicated, divided and weakened, and then their ruin became inevitable. And can we say that our own nation is in no danger from this intoxicating cup of losing the things which belong to its peace? Oh, whatever is the cause, our prosperity and glory are, in a measure gone, our peace has fled, and war, with all its sour attendance, is now our portion. 
the cause may be traced to our sins, which testify now against us. These have provoked the Lord to anger, and his anger against sin is the sole cause of all misery, personal and relative, individual and national, temporal and eternal. The sins of professing churches have often provoked the anger of heaven to remove their candlestick out of its place. Nations tremble for the same cause. Yes, the whole earth and creation itself groan under the load of man's guilt. The judgments of gods are abroad on the earth because of the wickedness of men. And when we consider the fury and rage, the mutual carnage and destruction of nations, does it not appear that they have been drinking of the intoxicating cup of God's holy indignation? Why else are they so maddened in their passions to wreak their vengeance on one another? Why does a nation, upon the slightest pretext, rise up against a nation so that blood spills blood? And does not the compassionate Savior now weep over this impassioned lands? Does he not say to America in the language of our test, Oh, that you had known, even you, at least on this day, the things which belong to your peace. Oh, so that you listened to my commandments. Then had your peace been as a river and your righteousness as the waves of the sea. Had we as a nation listened to the God of our fathers and to the Proverbs of wisdom contained in his word, this had, even now, been our happy case. We should not have been compelled to witness the confused noise of the warrior and the garments rolled in blood. Had we, our fathers, our princes, and people, all united in maintaining the worship of God and unfeigned obedience to his law, our national prosperity would not have been interrupted. The things which belong to our peace would not have been hidden from our eyes. The blessings engaged to Israel while they adhered to the service of Jehovah might have been expected in this happy land. Our sons have been as plants grown up in their youth, our daughters as cornerstones polished for a palace. Our storehouses would have been full, affording all manner of supply. Our sheep would have been brought forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets. Our oxen would have been strong for labor. There would have been no breaking in nor going out, no complaining in our streets. Happy is the people that is in such a case. Yes, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Such are the blessings which in the ordinary course of providence are generally given to nations whose rulers and people faithfully follow the Proverbs of the gospel. And such happiness would have been yours, O America, had this been your uniform character. But how have you fallen from your former greatness? How has your glory departed? How the gold becomes dim and the most fine gold changed. There was a time when we were the envy of the world. The fame of our independence, freedom, and prosperity rang through the channels of commerce to the remotest nations. The wealth of every climate was, through this medium, brought to our shores. By this, our national treasury was replenished. Agriculture and manufacturing flourished. Learning and the arts advanced with rapid pace, and we were swiftly in, and we were swiftly emulating the greatness of the first in rank in the old world. Happy, so very happy. O oh, Americans, had you known what happiness was, yours 
had you regarded the things which belong to your peace. But now, how they are hidden from our eyes. We are now an example of the prospect of ruin and misery that comes upon the despisers of God's mercy. 2. Will this not excite the mercy of those who have the Spirit of Christ? David, the eminent type of our Savior, demonstrates to a lively degree this sympathetic Christian affection. Honor, says he, has taken hold of me because of the wickedness that forsake your law. Rivers of water run down my eyes because they do not keep your law. I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they did not keep your word. Having the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, he was grieved to the very heart to see others blindly rushing to their own ruin. A view of their sinful character and a terrible state filled him with the maligned emotions of grief, indignation, and pity. He mourned the wickedness of men and dishonor of God more than his own sufferings. And he wept a flood of tears. And no one has a right to pretend to have the Spirit of Christ unless the sin and misery of others so deeply affects him. To rejoice in others' calamity is the very temper of hell. To rejoice in the hope and prospect of that his calamity will work for his good is a very different thing. This is consistent with the this is consistent with that Christian benevolence, which regards our neighbors as ourselves. If sore afflictions appear necessary to humble and reform a bold transgressor and seem likely to produce such a happy effect, then we must need to acquiesce in the divine method and pray for its success. But to rejoice purely in another's distress is inhuman. It is anti-Christian and diabolical. The benevolent Savior and his inspired saints have taught us a better spirit and set us a better example. They mourned and wept, even for those who thirsted to shed their innocent blood. But though Jesus was a man of sorrows and often groaned and wept in view of the suffering of humanity, and yet the blind passion, pride, and stubbornness of sinners distressed his sympathetic soul far more. He looked on the Pharisees with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. And when he beheld the oppressive city of Jerusalem, in spite of all his counsels, warnings, and treaties, rushing headlong into ruin, his pitiful soul dissolved into tears. And where the Savior now visible, we should doubtless behold him weeping over the con condition and prospect of our own guilty land, our peace, prosperity, and happiness are on the rapid decline, and war, adversity, and a host of evils take their place. Liberty, too, the pride, the darling, and boast of, of America's, like a hunted, persecuted fugitive, seems on the point of seeking some more hospital climate. Driven from the nation to nation, and from one end of the earth to another, like Noah's dove, she can scarcely find rest for the sole of her foot. For a course of years, she had found asylum, protection, and patronage in the Western world. But her residence becomes more and more precarious, for already many have begun to treat the celestial virtue with neglect or even 
cold contempt, preferring the unbounded indulgence of sin to the wholesome restraints implied in genuine liberty. Infuriated mobs burst the barrier which heaven and earth have raised for the security of life, prosperity, and happiness. The deplorable conditions of a sister country excites the groans and sympathy of all the humane, of all the followers of the Lamb. That city, which, like Jerusalem, had been highly exalted in privilege, wealth, and splendor, is now doomed to be the prey of those who follow no laws, respect no character, and whose tender mercies are cruel. Even the distant report of their maddened fury is enough to chill the blood and freeze the soul with horror. It reminds us the furious mob who wrecked their vengeance on Stephen, the first Christian martyr. In his defense before the Jewish councils, his pungent discourse cut to the heart his violent persecutors, and they, like ferocious beasts, gnashed on him with their teeth. Being full of the Holy Ghost, he saw in vision a display of heavenly glory, and when he proclaimed aloud before his exasperated persecutors the glorious scene presented to his view, they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran up to him with one accord. Then, with brutal ferocity and infernal rage, they cast him out to the city and stoned him to death. A familiar mob persecuted the Immaculate Savior of the world. They misinterpreted all his words and actions, multiplied their false accusations against him, and treated him with every personal insult and indignity. Nothing, in short, would satisfy their bloodthirsty fury till they had inflicted upon their unoffending victim the most cruel and torturous death. So we see that human nature is the same in all periods, and persecuting mobs were known as early as the apostolic age. From their unbridled ferocity and horrid misrule, may heaven preserve us. O my soul, do not come into the secret councils, for their assembly, my own honor, do not be united. Had we, as a nation, regarded the things which belong to our peace, scenes of riot, misrule, and civil war would never have commenced among us. Had we followed the words of the gospel in all our private and public relations and capacities, had we studied the things which make for peace and things which one might edify another, and had still remained a united people owned and blessed by the Lord. But by our various sins, we have made God our enemy. And unless he turns away his anger and has mercy on us, we will most assuredly perish. We humbly hope and trust that the things which belong to our peace are not forever hidden from our eyes. We hope a precious remnant may yet be reserved for those for whose sake God will consider worth sparing in a guilty land. Were it not for this pious remnant we had already now, become as Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Zeroboam. There is no truth in the Bible more plain than this, that it is on account of the righteous God bears with wicked nations. Should the righteous be all removed, the wrath of heaven would soon burst upon their guilty survivors. In proportion to the growth of the righteous, so will there be an abundance of fruits of righteousness and the prosperity of any people. On the contrary, the more wickedness and wicked men are increased and exalted, the more the anger of heaven is kindled and ruin hurries its pace. 
Let our nation turn to the Lord and bring out fruits of repentance. Let ministers and people unite in following the maxims of the gospel. And then be assured, the doom of Jerusalem will not be ours. God will be our shield, and no weapon formed against us will prosper. But should we go on apathetic to the things which belong to our peace, and if we succeed in conquering the only free nation on earth except our own, the nation who, bad as she is, is doing more than all the world in extending the world of life and the blessing of Christianity to millions ready to perish, if we succeed in conquering that nation which now under providence stands between us and ruin, what should we gain? Now, Nothing but poverty, sin, and slavery. Nothing but a deadly alliance with that infidel, atheistical power whose armies will soon be assembled at Armageddon and fall in the battle of the great day of the God Almighty. The greatest of all earthly judgments would be an intimate confederacy with infidel powers. For sin, like the plague, is contagious. As sure as we become partakers of mystical Babylon's sins, we must receive her plagues. Our religion under God is our defense and our glory. Should this be destroyed and atheism prevail, then farewell to our peace and happiness forever. We will not all, my friends, imitate the morning Jesus and weep over our lost country. Our former glory has departed. Darkness covers the land and thick darkness the people. Our joy is turned to mourning. Our absurd mercies into desolating judgments already distress rings many a heart, and horrors of thick darkness brood on many a face. The arm of industry is paralyzed by the sickening aspect of the times, and anxiety is all alive in expectation of scenes more tremendous. Thousands of wives, parents, and other connections now feel a dreadful sorrow for husbands, children, and friends who are in danger of falling prey to a provoked enemy. The prospect that numerous widows, orphans, and beggars will be multiplied by this desolating judgment must give pain to every heart that does not delight in war and human misery. Our only consolation and hope in this distressing season are in the government and perfections of God. But even this hope and consolation we cannot expect to realize. If our sins continue to testify against us and we remain impotent, the rod of divine correction will still be stretched over us and the besom of destruction will sweep us away unless we take refuge in the ark of safety, unless we break off our sins by righteousness and our iniquities by turning to God. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. Be exhorted, my friends, to secure this refuge and then you need not be afraid of evil tidings. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Do you wish to avoid Jerusalem's doom and to shun the plagues of anti-Christian corruptors? Then be aware of the fascinating cup. Be aware of the wine of astonishment. Be aware of the snares laid carefully for your destruction. Do not sell your birthright for a bowl of soup. Do not trade your religion, your savior, and your souls for any short-term gratifications which flattering infidels may offer. But behold the banner of the Prince of Peace. Enlist under Christ as your leader and commander. Let his word be your sword, faith 
your shield, and hope, your helmet of salvation. This is the contest to which we are called. This is the warfare to which the trumpet of God invites you. Join as volunteers this banner, and then, whatever be the doom of your country, victory is yours. You will come off more than conquerors through Christ who has loved us all. Amen. The part that stuck out to me in the sermon was just how much he kind of, especially in those early parts of the sermon, just points to all the empires that have come and gone before. And they were righteous. They were wealthy. They did well. But then wicked people ruled over them because they fell into sin and the empires of the, you know, of the ones were gone and we don't see them anymore. You know, he kind of points to like, there's all these biblical empires from the Middle East back then. Where are these empires, you know, today? Each of them slowly giving them up. But why? And it's so interesting as somebody who enjoys history and you'll you'll read all these things where it'll be, you know, the rule. The reason this, you know, empire fell was because of uh, bad trading or, you know, the other empire had better weapons or technological advances or, uh, you know, it was they were never in a good geographical position or whatever. They'll all these answers they give. And I, I like that Moses Dow and again, the John Owen sermon that if you haven't gone listen to it, go do that. I, they both of them go, that's not it. It's not these historical reasons that you'll maybe see. They may have been the cause, they may have been the symptoms, but the real, the real cause was the heart of the people weren't following God and they had turned against the Lord. Not that they always were Christian nations, many of them weren't, but they got to a point where heaven said, you know what, you've sinned too much, I'm done with you. And, you know, I just think he makes this great point where he's like, look at these countries in the middle, like we don't even, you know, Syria, Babylon, you know, Persia, where are they now? Uh, you know, Greece, Rome, none of none of those places are ruling the world anymore. And so it will be as they go, when the people of a land walk away from God and begin to fill their hearts and their land with sin, the next step usually ends up being something quite devastating. And when he saw, when Moses Dow saw this war very early on in American history, way before uh, any of us alive today, he said, we've got to fast and we've got to repent. Our sins are getting to a bad place and we're in real trouble. And I can't help but wonder if that's the message for many of us today as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Patrick Studebaker. You can listen to more of Patrick on Cave to the Cross podcast. We'll link it in our description down below. We are a big fan of Patrick Studebaker in the Cave to the Cross podcast. Patrick is awesome. And also Patrick has done sermons before for us before. Uh, I believe he did some of our older guys. I think Gregory of Nazianzas, um, but his, I think his most recent one with us was Joseph Parker, uh, which is a really great episode on Charles Spurgeon's rival, rival, in the sense that they were both big pastors in the same town, um, and people wanted to see how they interact. It's a good episode. Just a reminder, it, as, as I said at the top of this episode, me and my wife are probably traveling at the moment that you're listening to this, and Joel also might be traveling when you're listening to this as well, or will be soon. Uh, pray for us. Pray for our summer plans. Pray for myself and my wife, uh, Troy and Elise, that we will have good travel plans. And pray for uh, Joel and his wife, too, that they'll be able to get the traveling they have this summer. We both have a lot of things going on. And I think Joel and I could both use a lot of prayers for the summer. So we would appreciate if you just took a moment to pray for us if you have some time to do so. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts.
A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.